Let me start by giving you an update on our plans for preaching over the next month. Any day now, Pastor Matt and Angela are expecting to have their baby, which is exciting. And it also means that for the next few weeks, Pastor Matt won't be preaching. He'll be busy at home taking care of his wife and kids. So our plan here, Lord willing, is that I'll be preaching a few times and our pastoral intern, Matt Oakham, will also be preaching. So please do pray for us, stay tuned, stay in touch with us online, and especially pray for the Rudds as they welcome another child into their family. I also hear that they like Lone Star, so keep that in mind if the Lord is leading you to help them, possibly with a gift card or a meal. Well, it's January 10th, and before I begin, I must say that it is my daughter Violet's birthday, so I want to say, Violet, uh, happy birthday to you. Love you. Well, this week I'd like to start a short three-part series on John 9 and 10. Here's the reason. Since the summer, I've been reading through the Gospels, and something good has been happening to me. Let me tell you about it. I've read these books with my eyes peeled to see how Jesus reaches people. I've been watching to see how Jesus deals with people. And here's what's been happening to me. As I see Jesus deal with people in the Gospels, Jesus has been dealing with me. In the last few months, words that I've read before have become more sweet to my spiritual taste buds. As I watch Jesus challenge people's hearts with grace and truth in the most fitting ways, I've been challenged. As he tailors his words to each person he meets, he's doing the same with me. In the Gospels, he gets to people's hearts by landing words or questions in order to stir and cure them. And he's constantly pointing people to where and how they need to respond to him in that moment. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means that though he's not physically here with us, he's still working through his word, and he still knows exactly how to reach us even today. I love what Leon Morris says about Jesus' approach to people. He says this, In his ministry to the souls of men, Jesus adopted no stereotyped approach. He dealt with each man as his peculiar need required. He's still working in this word, through his word, uh, in this world, through his word, to deal with each of us as our peculiar need requires as well. And this has been far from boring for me. Rather, the Holy Spirit seems to be pulling me closer to Christ as I observe the life of Christ in the Gospels. Watching him shows me how to live and love as a child of the Heavenly Father. Watching him shows me what it looks like to be full of the Spirit and the wisdom of God. As I read more of Christ, I'm being drawn into my relationship with him, and he's restoring my sanity. His personal words are touching, melting, and smiting me again. And I pray he does the same for you. Here's the last thing that's been happening. While reading the Gospels, I've discovered something basic about the Gospels. You might laugh at how common sense this is. It's not earth-shattering, but it has been special and significant to me. These books are called the Gospel According to 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? They tell us four inspired accounts of the words, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ by four authors. But he, Jesus, is the centerpiece of these Gospels. The books we call the Gospels are the good news, and they're about Jesus. I know it's common sense, but it struck me. Which means Jesus, according to the Bible, is the good news. So the title of this series is Jesus is the Good News. I love what Thomas Watson says of this. He says, Jesus Christ is the sum and quintessence of the gospel. He is the wonder of angels and the joy and triumph of saints. The name of Christ is sweet. It is as music in the ear, honey in the mouth, and a cordial at the heart. Christ is the glory of the gospel, and faith in Christ, the comfort of the gospel. In this series, I'd like us to find out for ourselves how sweet the name of Christ is. I'd like us to experience the gospel as music in our ears and honey in our mouths. So let's slow down to watch Jesus deal with people, and let's allow him to deal with us. In this series, we'll look at some familiar passages with the intent to personalize the words of Christ and have them warm our hearts to him again. And I think we'll see that Jesus truly is the good news. And if you say, well, great, I know the gospel very well, so why should I stay watching and, listen and listening right now? For you, I'd like to em em emphasize that you personalize your relationship with Jesus. Listen carefully to Gerald Bray's sobering words. It has always been possible to know about Jesus without encountering him personally. True conversion comes only by meeting Jesus, and the time and place of that meeting are decided by him. So if you haven't been converted, I pray that Jesus will give you spiritual eyes to see and meet him and believe in him today. And for us Christians, let's consider Martin Luther's words to us about the necessity of continually hearing and believing the gospel. He says, the gospel cannot be beaten into our ears enough or too much. Yes, though we learn it and understand it well, yet there is no one who takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with all his heart. So I pray that today Jesus reaches us with his word as our peculiar need requires. And I pray that each of us will encounter him personally and believe in him with more of our heart. To do this, we'll be looking at the gospel according to John. So please turn to John chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 30 through 31. John 20, verses 30 through 31. These, are, this, these verses are the purpose statement of the book of John, the gospel according to John. Here John tells us why he wrote his gospel. And he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John could have written much more about Jesus, but the things he wrote about in this gospel were intended to lead us readers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wrote 
so that by believing in Christ, we would become Christians. We'd have life in him. So that's the purpose of everything in this book, including our text in John chapter 9. Now you can flip over there to John chapter 9, which is going to be our text for today. John 9 was written, like everything else in this book, to lead us into a saving relationship with Jesus by faith, by believing in him. And for each of us who has a relationship with Christ, John 9 serves as an incredible parallel to our life. The way Jesus gives this man physical sight matches the way Jesus has given us spiritual sight to see and believe in him. So as we move through the narrative, let's try our best to connect the dots from this man's story to our own story. Here we'll see that Jesus gives a blind man sight, and this sign points to Christ and points to the spiritual sight that Jesus gives to those who believe in him. Now an important and ironic theme in this passage is blindness and how blindness is is moving out of some eyes and into the eyes of others. Jesus, the light of the world, is causing some to see, spiritually and physically. But his light divides humanity. Humanity is divided upon their reaction and response to the light. And those who are lost in the darkness of their unbelief refuse to come to Jesus, covering their eyes and becoming blinded by the light. Today we'll see how Christ gives sight for some to see while others remain blinded to his light. But before we do, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work marvelously through the word of God today. Lord, that you would speak to hearts and that, Lord, people would gain sight to see and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord, we pray that as your word is speaking through the internet, Lord, that you would touch even your, uh, your believers in comforting ways by the gospel again. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see in this passage is the sign. Christ gives sight to the blind. Here's the sign. Look at verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 1 says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Notice the specifics were given. It's not just that this man is blind. You can find many people in the New Testament who are blind and Jesus gives them sight. But John gives us more here. He says this man was blind from birth. A blindness like this was often seen as a mark of God's displeasure. And at the time, it was widely held that this blindness from birth was due to someone's sin, either the blind person or his parents. So this was 
a man who had, experienced likely, uh, who had likely experienced a lifetime of mistreatment and shame by the public. But verse 1 says, Jesus saw him. Jesus saw this man who couldn't see him. And while the, the disciples want to understand the cause of this man's blindness, Jesus is eager to show us the purpose for his blindness. As verse 1 says, this man was blind, or sorry, as verse 3 says, this man was blind so the works of God might be displayed in him. That's what Jesus says. His public blindness set the stage for Jesus, the light of the world, to give him sight. Jesus focuses not on the cause of the blindness, which the disciples are trying to figure out, but the purpose for the blindness. And the purpose of his blindness is so the works of God would be displayed in him and in public. And with that in mind, let's see how, the commun- how, how this stirs the community around him in verse 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Ironically, his neighbors can't believe their eyes. Their blind neighbor is blind no more. And they're curious to know what happened and how his eyes were opened. And the man who had been cured from his blindness just gives a truthful account of what Jesus did for him. So here we're seeing that God's works in his life provide an opportunity for him to be a witness to those around him. He doesn't know much about Jesus yet. At this point, um, he, he he just knows that there's a man named Jesus, the man called Jesus, right? But this will change as the narrative progresses. Right now, his knowledge of Christ is blurry. But as the narrative proceeds, his spiritual vision of Christ gets clearer and clearer. A beautiful irony. As we consider the ripple effect here, listen to Leon Morris as he says this. The first result John records is the effect of the miracle on the neighbors of the formerly blind man. They were so astonished at such a cure that some of them refused to believe that this was the man who had been blind. (laughs) Now this sign points to Christ and to the spiritual sight he gives to us who believe. So for us who believe in Christ, let's try to connect the dots from this man's story to our own. The same Jesus who saw and cured this man from his physical blindness saw and cured us from our spiritual blindness, didn't he? As the Bible says, he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And when that happens, usually, like this man, we become the talk of the town. Our conversion typically becomes the subject of gossip. But that's okay. Because when people like our neighbors start asking and start gossiping about us to find out if what happened to us is actually true, we get to start telling them about Jesus. 
Now, like this man, we can't make our neighbors believe, but we can give an explanation of what Jesus has done for us. We can tell them that we were blind, but now we see. Now, let me get more specific and come into your living room. Have you been born with any sort of disability, disease, or disorder? Maybe it's blindness, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's public, or maybe it's not. Are you sick or suffering from something that nobody can cure? Let me tell you, Jesus sees you. And is it possible, friend, that your disabilities or sufferings are actually giving giving you an opening to tell others about God's works in your life? Is it possible that God's purpose for your suffering is to display His grace to those around you? Now, this may be hard to hear, but suffering Christian, will you embrace God's purposes for your sufferings instead of worrying about the causes? Jesus says, said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Back to our text. Let's see how this plays out in his life. This man is about to go through quite a test of his faith from the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Now, as we read the next section, I want to prepare you. I I want to keep one question in your mind as we go through the next several verses. Here's the question. Who do you relate to most in this text? Ask yourself, who do I relate to most in this text? The man who cannot deny God's works through Christ? Or the religious leaders who can't see God's works through Christ? Who do you relate to most in this text? We go from the sign to the scrutiny. Some people cannot see the light of Christ. We see this in verses 13 to 34. They brought, the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked, again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The identity of Jesus now comes front and center in this discussion. More specifically, the question becomes whether or not Jesus is from God. Now, the reason these questions are being raised is because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And now Jesus is dividing people up. This is typical in the Gospels. People are always taking sides with or against Jesus. It was true then. And it's still true now, isn't it? So as we move through the text, I insist that you don't remove yourself from it. Get in it. Look around. Who are you? Whose side are you on? Are you with Christ or against him? Look at verse 18. 
The Jews did not believe that he had been blind, uh, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? Or, sorry, how then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Now, this story is a problem for these leaders, and it's getting worse. Because they're, uh, as, we'll, as we'll see, they've already got settled conclusions about Jesus. But as they question the parents about this man's blindness, the facts are verified as true. They can testify, and they do in verses 20 through 21. Their son was blind, and now he does see. How it happened, they don't know, but it happened. This they do know. This story bothers the religious leaders, and they cannot and will not believe it. They would rather conclude that Jesus is not from God than conclude that Jesus is the Son of God who even gives sight to the blind people or to blind people on the Sabbath day. They will not change their conclusions about Jesus. In fact, their arguing morphs into an attack and abuse of power on this man. They will later cast him out of the synagogue for maintaining that Jesus had come from God, which is basically saying he is the Christ. What's clear is that they are blinded by the light. Watch what happens in verses 24 to 34. So for the, next, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. In these verses, powerful things are happening. Some people are hardening their hearts to Jesus through unbelief. And at the same time, a young convert is growing in his faith as his belief in Jesus grows. We see this often in the Gospels. And we see this often in the life of the church, don't we? People hear the word preached for years and won't give an inch of their life to Jesus. But they continually and consistently harden their hearts in unbelief. On the other hand, those who Jesus has changed, advance in their, faith as they, uh, in their faith as they hear and do the word. Let me ask you, 
Which one are you? Leon Morris says, The Jews press the healed man, and he withstands them with some vigor. They take their stand on their preconceived ideas, he on the simple fact that he knows. Their arguments caused him to clarify his position, and he finished the interrogation with a deeper appreciation of Jesus than he had had at the beginning. Those who thought of themselves as enlightened tried to badger the once blind man into denying his certainty that he now had light. The man won't budge on the truth of his story, even if there's a risk. And while he's new to Jesus and can't answer all the questions, there's one thing that he does know. I was blind, and now I see. Connecting the dots from this text to our lives should bring us comfort from the gospel. This is our story, isn't it, Christian? Though it differs in degree, here is a new convert being attacked by people who don't believe in Jesus. And their hatred towards Jesus grows as the man simply explains what Christ did for him. He just witnesses to what has happened. Is this not a great picture of persecution? Maybe you've had a taste of this if you're the only Christian in your home, or workplace, or class, or family. But listen to what shocks this man who's being persecuted. Who's being persecuted. It's not that he's being persecuted. Look at verse 30. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. This man who's simply telling the truth of what Jesus did for him is staggered by their unbelief. He's staggered at the unbelief of those around him. He can't believe their unbelief. And he's quite sarcastic here. And the sense of what he's saying is this. How is it that you religious leaders, the religious experts of the day, can't simply conclude that Jesus is from God? This is what you do. This is your line of work. You're religious leaders. You study the works and words of God. And yet you cannot see that Jesus came from God? This is... Ridiculous. He healed me and I've been blind from birth. It's a bona fide miracle right in front of your eyes, right in public, and you can't see that Jesus came from God? Now, Christian men and women, we can relate, can't we? At times, aren't we baffled that people around us can hear the word, learn Christ all their life, and see the change in us and still not believe? times we feel so shocked by this. Well, friends, before we start looking down our noses at people around us who don't believe, let's remember that this was all of us. And we would, this would still be all of us if it weren't for the grace of God and the work of God in our life. We're all by nature hard-hearted in unbelief when it comes to Jesus. We can see and hear the evidence of the resurrection with all the proofs in the world. Or the evidence of the healings of Jesus in history. And our hearts will still deny that He is who He said He is. Because evidence will not make us believe. God must work to open our eyes to see and believe in Jesus. See, faith is a gift from God 
But unbelief is a given. God must change our hearts if our conclusions about Christ are to change. Now we've seen the sign and the scrutiny. Let's see the split reacting to the light. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, let's review the story from the beginning. Jesus saw this man who was blind from birth. He gave him sight. The news went out in the community. People took sides on whether or not Jesus was from God. Then the man was persecuted by the religious leaders for believing in Jesus. And then we come to this verse where we see Jesus came and found him. Now, this is a vulnerable outcast in the religious community right now. But Jesus cares and cares for him. And Jesus sees him. Now, watch how our loving Lord reaches out to him and takes him in. Jesus lands a question tailored for this man at this time as his peculiar need required and he calls him to respond in faith. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Leon Morris says of this passage, This is the climax for the man of a process that has been going on throughout the chapter. He passes from thinking of him as a man, in verse 11, to seeing him as a prophet in verse 17. Then he advances to the thought of one to whom allegiance may fitly be given in verse 27. Then to one from God, verse 33. And finally he comes to believe in the Son of Man to whom worship should be given in verses 35 to 38. This man sees the Lord now by faith and sight. This moment reminds me of a time in the Old Testament it's the time in Genesis 16 when God reveals himself to Hagar. And Hagar calls God El Roy, the God who sees. He, uh, she says in uh, Genesis 16, 13 of God, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And isn't this so true of this man too? El Roy, the God who saw Hagar, has come in person in Christ and saw this man too. And now this man sees him by faith and by sight. He is El Roy in flesh. Verse 38 is the turning point and climax of the chapter. Jesus has given this man both physical and spiritual sight. He sees Christ and he believes in Christ. Then he worships him as his Lord. What a moment. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Christian, do you remember the moment you first believed? Can you connect the dots to verse 38? Though you didn't see Jesus face to face, I'm sure you'll never forget the moment when you met him by faith. Amazing grace. Thank you, Lord. Now, while that would be a great note to end on and finish on, the text isn't done. And surprisingly, Jesus isn't done. Jesus said 
in verse 39. For judgment I came in this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Of this verse, Don Carson says, Jesus' point in chapter 9, verse 39, is not that the very purpose of his coming was to condemn, nor even simply to divide the human race. He came to save, not condemn, as you look at in chapter 12, verse 47, but saving some entails condemning others. Ah, there's a riddle. As John 3.18 says, which we read earlier, whoever doesn't believe in the Son is condemned already. The Pharisees' sin of unbelief in Christ has been clear this whole chapter. But Jesus is not done reaching out. Watch next how Jesus deals with these men as their peculiar need requires. Verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. What's happening here? Listen carefully to Leon Morris again. He says this, His meaning is that they have enough spiritual knowledge to be responsible. Had they acted on the best knowledge they had, they would have welcomed the Son of God. But they did not act on this. They claimed to have sight, but acted like the blind. Therefore, their sin is not taken away. It remained with them. Claiming to be fools. Sorry, claiming to be wise. They became fools. I love what Jerem Bars says of Christ's approach to these Pharisees. He says, Pride creates a heart that is hard to penetrate, eyes that refuse to see, and ears that are closed. Jesus' harsh words arise from his commitment to break through their arrogant obstinacy. Wow, Jesus is still going for them, trying to poke holes in their preconceived conclusions about him. We can only hope that these words of Christ convicted these men to turn to him in due time. But wrapping things up here, we've seen in this text that humanity reacts to Christ in two ways. We either open our eyes and come to the light by believing in Christ, or we cover our eyes to the light of Christ and remain in the darkness of our unbelief. If we've come to Christ, if you've come to Christ, like the blind man in this text, no matter how hard you argue with us, we can't deny what Christ has done for us. It's the truth and it's our story. We were blind, but now we see. A work of God has taken place in our life and we cannot and will not deny it. But if you haven't come to Christ yet, like the leaders in this text, you remain blinded in the darkness of your unbelief. You cannot and will not be argued into Jesus, into salvation. We pray that God would call you out of darkness into his marvelous light like he's done for us. God's works are a beautiful mystery, aren't they? Christ's light shines brightly, blinding some and giving sight to others. How are you reacting 
to Christ, the light of the world, today, right now? Are you opening your eyes or are you covering them? He sees us. He sees you. Do you see him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is the light of the world. We thank you that he is gracious and he speaks through his word even today and he is dealing with us as our peculiar needs require. And so I pray, Lord, that each person who hears this, that you would deal with them, that you would speak to them, that you would lead them into salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name.